So welcome everyone to another of our Wednesday security seminars. And this week, we're really fortunate to have Greg Akers as a speaker. Um, I've known Greg for over 30 years. We were just reminiscing a little bit ago. And he's been doing some cutting edge security, particularly in network oriented security for all of that time and longer. Uh, most recently, he was a senior vice president and CTO of advanced security at uh, Cisco as part of the security and trust organization there. Uh, he has experience as an executive, as a researcher. He's worked in technology. He's worked in managing a group. He's advised the government. Um, really, there aren't a lot of people who are as familiar with the cutting edge aspects of network uh, and network security as Greg is. And today he's going to talk to us about a veritable uh, alphabet soup of uh, networking technologies um, in reading the title SDN Software Defined Networks, NFV Net, uh, Network uh, Function Virtualization, ICS Internet Control Systems, SCADA. Um, Cyber is not an acronym, but we'll let him tell about the rest of it. So Greg, thank you for being here. Please take it away. And again, for the audience, if you have questions, please post them in the Q&A. Well, thanks, Beth. Can you guys hear me okay? We good? Okay, got yeah, it. We're good. Yep. Yes, we'll good. get going. All right, guys. Um, appreciate the introduction. Um, you know, SPAF, I could say in some ways, I would tell you that cyber is a four letter word a lot of times, at least in my vernacular, it is. Uh, and as you say, I've been around it for a long time. Uh, you know, guys, I, I, I would tell you that I've worked a lot of the incidents you probably have learned about over the years. And I'll refer to a couple of them in here. When I was at Cisco, for example, I got brought in in the Target and Home Depot attacks. I was working peripherally in the Sony attack. So I was one of the guys that worked both during the attacks as well as the after effects of the attacks and have had exposure to a lot of the things that people are seeing today as sophisticated attacks. In fact, I've been working solar winds since that broke back in December. Uh, that was in my job at Cisco and I did a lot of different things in the security space there. My last job was in a research and government program for security and trust. Today, I spend most of my time advising and consulting with the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, still at Cisco, some a company called Cubic Mission Systems. They do kind of pointy edge of the sword networks for the battlefield and ships and things like that. I also work with a venture capital company called Option 3 Ventures. I'm the acting chief technology officer for a company called Veracity industrial networks, which is directly applicable to the topic at hand today, uh, and eliciting networks, which is also applicable to the, the, the issues at hand today. And I'll mention them as I go along. Um, I am gonna pay attention to the Q&A window. I was advised by somebody last night to keep an eye on that because questions can queue up there and it's hard to get them, uh, get them to a point of resolution at the end of the talk. I'm gonna try to talk for about 35, 40 minutes and then leave the remainder of the time for us to ask questions. Um, I don't see well. So if you see me, you know, like I'm confused looking at screens and moving my head around, it's because of my eyesight, not because I'm dis uh, uh, disregarding your question. Uh, and I will try to keep an eye on the, on the question set, uh, window here and make sure that I respond where I can. So what are we going to talk about today? I'm going to give you guys a glimpse of what my term paper was to my CEO at Cisco when I retired about three years ago. And I'm going to talk about what's driving the networked world these days and also a little bit about 
and Spaff already mentioned this, a little bit about software-defined networks or function, network function virtualization and zero trust networks. Now, I will tell you guys that I use the word SDN interchangeably with NFV. At Cisco, we think SDN was something we learned about early, and NFV was something that a competitor named Juniper learned about early. So my, my background taught me to think about these things as mostly SDN. Uh, I'll also talk about security-based applications, the evolution of segmentation and zero trust, something called moving target defense. And then the very last thing, I'm gonna take just a, a quick look at the SDN world and what the attack surface looks like there. As I said, we'll take questions as we go, but I'll also try to leave time at the end to, cap, uh, you know, to capture any additional questions or anything you might wanna have um, answered. I'll also at some point in the chat session, post an email address that you can you can reach me at. For those of you that do know me, you might find it funny that my Cisco email account that I've used for almost 30 years now, or I had used for almost 30 years, is now active again. So you can send me mail there. It's gacres at cisco.com, or you can send me email to, Greg, to gacres at gregacresconsulting.com. Either of those will work. So I'm gonna take just a minute to unpack this slide and ask you to have a little bit of a dream with me. Many of you might recognize this is a, a satellite shot. Actually, it's from Cape Canaveral in Florida. And this happens to be the shot in, I think, 2018 when SpaceX launched a payload that carried an entity called Simon, C-I-M-O-N, an AI-based tool that was sent to the ISS, the International Space Station, to be a, a device that would actually help them and help them learn to do things and be a companion to the astronauts on the space station. I picked this particular mission for a reason. This was a collaboration between a university in Munich, IBM Watson up in upstate New York and NASA. So there were three principal collaborators on this payload that went into space. And of course, then you have all the collaboration with the people at SpaceX that launched the payload to the ISS. So I want you to step back with me for just a minute and imagine the level of security protection that probably had to go into all of that collaboration and interaction over the course of the months and years leading up to that particular one-time launch, where, where if someone had wanted to cause something nefarious to happen during that cycle of time, they had all the opportunities that they had. So now fast forward maybe 15, 20 years, and vision a time when that level of complexity of collaboration is not constrained by security. It simply is a means by which it protects our communication, it protects our computation, and we just go into endeavors like this and we start to collaborate, we start to communicate, and we are assured that we have secure communication without really having, to, having a second thought about or having to have legions of people behind us making sure that that works. So what I'm painting a vision for you is the idea that in the future, security is just a basis of, of operation we work from within that fuels innovation, allows collaboration and communication to occur without even a second thought. I had an experience in the last couple of weeks where one of my mentees at Cisco came and said, Greg, paint me a vision of 2040 in the security world. And I said, it's where this just happens. We're protected, we're, we're, we're assured, and we don't have to even have a second thought about whether or not we can communicate or we can collaborate securely. So imagine a world like that. And I think the things we're gonna talk about today actually start getting us to that level.
So what does the next decade or a couple of decades look like? This was what I actually left behind for our CEO at Cisco. And I said to him, terabit networks will become a reality for everyone. Terabit speeds even up to the point of the end device that we're working on. Enhanced or augmented virtual reality will be a, 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 a part of normal life. We'll have AI across the board that supports life and quality of life. You know, we, we all wonder about what the world's gonna be like in the face of quantum computing and quantum cryptography. This will be here today. I don't know if all you, if any of you guys pay any attention to this, this is an area I pay a little bit of attention to. There are announcements just about every week of someone that's making some kind of progress in the quantum computation or quantum crypto space. Uh, Multi-dimensional environments will be will be there. We'll store things rather than in, in absolute bits and bytes on SSD types of devices. We'll store them as actual images of holographic images on storage to be able to retrieve them. I think by the time, and I don't remember where this number came from, by the time we get to about 2025, we're projecting a population globally. And of course, these are pre-pandemic numbers that'll have 8 billion people on the planet with roughly 80 billion connected devices. Now, my, my view again is that because of the pandemic, we may see that factor of number of devices uh, actually escalate with what we've seen in terms of benefit because of connectivity. If you doubt this number, I'd encourage you to go to whatever device you connect to, to get your, your internet service at your home and look at the number of devices that it keeps track of. I do this regularly on my own home, just mostly for security and integrity purposes. And I look at that and I look, oh my goodness, you know, I've added that device. My wife's added that device. The kids added that device. I mean, it's just, it's amazing the number of connected devices we're beginning to see crop up in everyday life. And as we see it cropping up in everyday life, it's cropping up in business all over the place. IoT, the internet of things is, is here. It's, it's absolutely doing things today that you couldn't even have imagined 10 years ago. As I said, the company that I work with, Veracity Industrial Networks, works in some of the most complicated manufacturing environments I've ever seen. And it's, it's a foregone conclusion that the devices, the PLCs, the controllers, the robotics that are in those plants are all connected. They're connected via ethernet and they are, they're connected in a way that they can communicate as needed to the devices that they have to communicate with to build things and do things and measure things in ways we've, we've never even imagined before. In the picture here, you see deployments in devices that, that fly. Uh, you know, we were talking about the wind tunnels a little bit, or, or sorry, the wind uh, mills a little bit earlier in your all's area. Uh, they're, in, they're in those kinds of manufacturing and IoT environments. They're in the, uh, the oil field. They're in the oil uh, tankers out on, or uh, platforms out in the ocean. They're, you know, we're connected everywhere. So all this is driving us towards a world of virtualization. By virtualization, I mean the notion that we can deploy our devices, we can deploy our resources, we can deploy our, comp our computing resources anywhere we need to, virtually in the cloud, at the edge, in core centers, anywhere we would decide that they needed to be placed. I, I offer this word cloud as just a way to, to kind of think about the things we hear about and talk about every day and the things that we see people doing with virtualization. As a result, the network boundary is ever exploding and ever increasing. I, I can remember a day when we thought about getting data into the data center and putting internet connectivity in the data center. As a matter of fact, that was actually one of the things that originally attracted me 
to go to Cisco was because they were actually deploying TCP IP networks in the data center and combating people like IBM that were trying to keep it out. Uh, but what's happened since then is we've just absolutely blown the use of the protocols and the use of the connectivity to all the far reaches of the world. And in fact, every time I turn around and talk to a company, I find internet technologies and internet-based protocols being used in places I had never imagined before. I think one of the funniest things I've heard recently, I'm sure you guys saw some of this in the, uh, in the social media rags, there was a doctor that I believe had a uh, court case that he had to zoom into and he was a plastic surgeon. So he decided he couldn't delay either. So he went ahead and did the plastic surgery at the same time he zoomed into the court case. And I think he was chastised by the judge and told to go back to do, to do his plastic surgery. And he get on the zoom on the zoom call later for the case. Now, there's no reason to believe that not only could he have not been a part of the Zoom call for the case, but he could have been using other advanced technology for remote control of things that were going on in that particular operating environment. So as we extend the enterprise, these are the objectives people want to think about. They want to push the, the borders of that network to all the edges of their environments. Every place they go, every asset they have, every transaction they engage in, they want to provide connectivity. They want to reduce risk and apply security appropriately. They want to do it with speed and agility so they can take advantage of it, both from a, a, a competitive standpoint, but also from a standpoint of, of making new things happen for their customers. Uh, compliance and regulations can be met, innovation and differentiation. I'm reading a, a question that just came in, it says, uh, it's from Krasi. It says, how do we testify over Zoom calls in the age of EEP fakes? Um, we don't do it very well today. And in fact, I would argue that I use the word Zoom as a verb. And I personally believe that there are better tools out there that can do this. But I, I think one of the things we have to start thinking about, and one of the things especially we have to think about in the world, in the world, in the world of advanced AI is how we explain the technology we're using is behaving the way it is. So I'm spending a lot of time right now with AI people that are talking to me about how to, how to derive benefit and conclusions from computation and delivering results to people. But at the same time that they deliver results, they, they derive an understanding of the explainability and the assurance of the result. And they deliver that at the same time. So my point is, We've got the opportunity. Oh, I'm sorry. That was supposed to be deep fakes. <laughs> um, we've got the opportunity to uh, to actually create a computational and commu communication environment where it can be a part of the assurance of the integrity of what it is we're doing. So as we extend the enterprise, what challenges do people care about? Well, we've talked about security concerns. They're always there. I would tell you in many places where I'm working with OT providers, there's a lot of collaboration going on between the information technology components of companies and the OT components of, of companies. Now, what I'm seeing going on is actually many companies defining two different groups to do two separate things and then having to come together, together and collaborate. I predict over time that'll go away and we will end up having one single group that deals with cybersecurity in the IT and the OT world simultaneously. People are also caring about how, how cost effective how, and how 
beneficial it is to the business. Uh, does it provide an ROI? Does it reduce control and complexity problems? And does it improve our overall business processes? So as network architects and security architects, what do we have to think about? Well, let's see all the typical stuff. Can we prepare for the future? Are we on time? Are we within budget? Are these things uh, doing the things we want them to do through our design choices and our, and our options? Uh, are they industry best practices so we won't be accused of not bringing the best tools to the, to the fight? These are all things that we deal with when we start doing network designs. So one of the tools that many people are using today is something called software-defined networking. And I'm going to take just a minute here. Again, I'm not going to drain this slide, but take just a minute here and talk a little bit about what software-defined networking is. It is an attempt basically to separate the control layer of, of the network and the data layer or the infrastructure layer of the network and to provide a means by which applications can take advantage of that separation by interacting directly with the control layer and letting the control layer that interact with the, the data layer. And these are done by these APIs that are, I've, I've demonstrated on this chart through in the top chart through what we call north-southbound north API interactions or calls. And then in the, in the other one, in the sec, second part of the chart, southbound interactions or calls with the network layer. Now, the point by doing this is that if someone in some way abrogates one of the layers, they don't in fact abrogate the intent or cause problems with the other layers. So with the application layer, we want to provide those things that are going to be beneficial to the application. We want to implement logic for flow control. At the control layer, we want to implement things that are a part of the kernel or control aspects of it. We want on applications to control flows going on in the network. And at the infrastructure layer, that's where our actual data moves around, where the data plane is actually in the network switches or routers that moves data from device to device. And this is an architecture that came out of the Open Network Foundation's uh, work that, that came out in something back, I think it was back in the, in the 90s that we, we ended up bringing out of Stanford uh, in the form of something called the, the Big Switch World, Open. And I'm gonna talk about Big Switch a little bit later. So when we think about that model, what happens when we think about the security components? Well, security as an app becomes a pretty compelling thing. Now, what I'm talking about when I talk about security as an app, it's an application that runs at that higher level and interacts with the middle and the bottom layer through function calls through the API, the North-South APIs to do things like firewall, scan detection, prevention, think about advanced malware prevention, denial of service detection and prevention, intrusion detection and prevention, deep packet inspection, sandboxing, and any other number of things, including AI and ML tools in the cyber world that can interact with the, the data that's going on at the lower levels. So why does security as an app make sense? Well, it can be very cost effective. It can also be easy to deploy because it rides on top of that architecture. And it can be rich and flexible and changed whenever the need might change. There's an example of this that came out of the company Big Switch that I mentioned a few minutes ago that was acquired by Arista earlier this year. And the app, the, the architecture they came out with is something called the Big Secure Architecture. So all the all the, the little the five icons at the top represent the applications that need to run on it. They pass through a general firewall that provides access to the infrastructure to the control plane. And in that control plane, we run the jobs of IDS IPS 
you know, the things I mentioned on the prior page, uh, sandboxing, DPI, and it provides us a place to do these things very efficiently and very fast and very, and very flexibly. Uh, I would argue that we would actually be able over time to derive the ability to deal with complex data flows as well as large terabit data flows with a model like this. Okay, let's go ahead now and talk about the next topic, which is segmentation. Segmentation has been around for a long time, and I'm going to talk about that. But I've got three quotes up here, one from the US CERT, the people at uh, DHS CISA, whom I spend a fair bit of time with, people in Australia at the Department of Defense Information Security Agency, and at the bottom, a quote from a company called Data Guardian, who's actually a data loss prevention provider. They have their own products that actually also say the best tool to prevent data loss is actually to segment data in places where it's not accessible to things that don't need it. And that's what segmentation is all about. Segmentation is about the idea that we can take things that are needed for specific purposes and separate them from other things that don't need them. So first thing I wanna talk about is the way we do segmentation in the classic network world. And this is through something called static access control lists. And the idea behind this is if you look at the, at the congregation of users on the bottom layer, you've got IoT, you've got voice, uh, video, employee, supplier, bring your own device, people and non-compliant devices that need access to corporate, uh, to corporate resources, as well as people in, the cl in cloud resources. So in the world that we live in, we've lived in for almost 25 years, typically what those things are done is through something we call access control list. So for those of you that have never seen an access control list, I wanted to show this to you. This is actually an access control list out of a firewall. And while I didn't write this one, at one point in my career, I made a living out of actually writing these access control lists. In fact, I was so paranoid about making a mistake in this kind of a, a, a morass of information that I would write my access control lists on either side of the devices I was protecting so that they were complementary to one another, that if one access control list failed, the other one would be sure to take it up. Now, you talk about a mind-bending exercise where I was trying to create this Boolean truth table on one side and the contrapositive on the other side, what I was actually doing was making even more complexity and building more complication into it and creating more opportunity for error. And in fact, this was one of the things I spent most of my time doing when I was paid to develop access control lists was not writing the list, but actually debugging them. And for those of you that don't know what this is, this is a list of protocols, IP addresses, network masks, and ports that are used to allow, deny, or permit uh, certain flows of data between devices. They become very complicated, they become very cumbersome, and they're very difficult to apply. When, it, when you're working in a world like this, you have to deal with definitions and access uh, control places like the Active Directory, within policies in your VLAN environments, within your subnets. Then you have to implement your policy in ACLs. You have to apply them and test them. And then you have to go off and use all the different tools that were out there, different interfaces to apply them. And in this world, this ends up having about, about a dozen different touch points in a fairly simple network architecture to make something like this work. Each one of these is fallible. Each one of these is prone to error, error and human mistake. And that's the world we've lived in for quite some time now. I would argue that the idea of applying segmentation through things like SDN and other tools gives us an opportunity to move into a different world. Now, macro segmentation is a way by which we actually can take that same set of user requirements and begin to map them together into light 
virtual uh, networks, just like we do, did the VLAN work in the act in the ACL list, but we can actually separate them so that we can prevent the IoT device from communicating with that quarantine device or that bring your own device component of the corporate network that we might need to compute uh, might need to compute with, but we don't want to be corrupted by. Now, if you apply this over a reasonably sized enterprise, this becomes fairly complex fairly quickly. But with the SDN world, we can actually do this very, very quickly and make it make it work in a way that only those things that need access to the corporate resources and the internet resources that they're entitled to can become can actually activate, get access to them. Now, what we're going to talk about now is the fact that, okay, we've pulled things together, but we've got all these IoT devices kind of lumped into one thing. And the problem we've got is those things that are that are put together may not be necessary for all the things that we need to do to get our job done. Well, think about the situation that happened, for example, at uh, at Target. Target was the effect of a of a uh, an attack that came in through an HVAC system that attacked a point of sale system that ultimately attacked the uh, the cash register system in the stores. What if we could actually have separated those IoT devices and only allowed the like devices that needed to communicate to actually communicate and prevent that lateral spread? I would argue with you that if you go back and you look at what we know about solar winds so far, solar winds was there primarily to do lateral spread in most environments. If we could have prevented that lateral spread, we could have mitigated much of the damage there and provided a way for us to control the effect of that attacker. So now we go on to the next level of segmentation, something called micro segmentation. In my opinion, that's probably the ultimate zero trust tool. In fact, the company I mentioned earlier, Elicity, does something they call nano segmentation, which says every device, every mechanism on the network becomes a segment unto itself. Let me show you a little bit about how this idea would work. So we go back to our original example, got all the devices in our collective, but we've got to focus on our IoT devices that are in the manufacturing environment. So we could build a manufacturing VLAN, but let's just let's just spend a minute talking about that. So if I focus on just those manufacturing devices and we lump them in with all the IoT devices, we've got the problem that I just described that might've happened at Target, where you've got devices that don't have a reason to communicate with each other in the same VLAN that are actually allowed to communicate with one another. In fact, what we prefer is to have an environment where only the card readers can, can communicate with each other, only the HVAC system components can communicate with each other, and only our very important manufacturing environment components can communicate with each other. And this is a tool that we can use in the zero trust world to make sure that we, we remove lateral, lateral spread of attacks in a way that we can actually protect them. And I would tell you guys that that's the way that I see a lot of companies moving to try to isolate what it is they're doing. I've got, I've got three or four other companies that I work with that are moving towards a model that says, you know what, the more segmentation and the more fine-grained segmentation we could do, the better off we are. Okay, I'm going to move on now and talk about something that I, I have learned a little bit about over the last five years called moving target defense. So again, trying to solve the problem of lateral movement. What if the attacker lays down and tries to move into other components within my network, but those devices and those services in my network that are there move around and change in ways that they can't keep up with them? The SDN controller becomes an ideal place for this kind of malleability to be built into the network. The idea is to provide flexible infrastructure for developing and managing obfuscation of assets, as well as eliminating reconnaissance and mitigating attack attacks. So the things that we talk about in the MTD space 
are things like random host mutation, random route mutation, where the host ID, the host IP address changes, the host route changes, network mapping becomes very, very difficult and reconnaissance becomes a problem. And then at the end of the day, you also can provide ways to actually obfuscate what services are on the network and what operating systems are running on the network. Now, the logical question to this slide is, well, if I do this, what happens to the poor network, uh, network engineer and security engineer that have to resolve problems on this network? Well, what happens that in that case is we actually ask the SDN controller to make sure that it keeps track of the state of the network at the time of particular incidents so that we can map that into the providing uh, information to the network engineer and the security engineer so they can find their problems and fix them. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is the attack surface. So at the end of the day, when we've created all this malleability and all this variability in the network, we've created an awful lot of places for people to actually do nefarious things. And I want to make sure that everybody remembers that. SDN functionality, manage, I'm sorry, moving target defense, security of service loads an awful lot of software onto components of the network. They load them in places that actually the attackers could take advantage of, number one. Number two, that amount of software has to be thought about as being a potential target in, in a place that we have to be able to protect it. So things like secure development life cycles where we can provide good connectivity, I'm sorry, good capability against the, uh, the attack surface that we've created with all that software becomes really important. The bad guys will look at the controllers as being opportunities. They'll look at the flows the north-southbound flows, the east-west flows as being potential op opportunities of tar targets of opportunity. They'll also be looking at things like attacks where you can, you can actually provide you know, nefarious or other types of uh, counterfeit requests into an environment like that. So my point by this slide is provide a, a, a cautionary note to all practitioners. When you start providing this amount of software variability in networks, you're creating an awfully large attack surface in the software space you have to mitigate. You have to provide practices and means by which to, to mitigate those things. Okay, guys, I want to take just a minute and say thank you for the time. I want to make a special, special thanks out to Michael Geller at Cisco, Dr. Astush Duda at IEEE and JHUAPL, and Dr. Kuhn Sun at George Mason University for content they provided in this in this deck. Um, I also think we're about at the 30 minute mark of my presentation time. So I'll go ahead and look in the uh, in the window for any other questions that might be um, that might be out there. If there's anything that I can I can answer, please go ahead and uh, post something here. Or if there's anyone that's got access to video or, or audio that wants to come on and ask questions, we can do it that way too. Well, Greg, I can't type a question in here, but um, I, I wanted to ask you what you thought of the potential for AI expert systems to help in configuring these networks to avoid some of those those seams and attack uh, locations. Is and and what are the corresponding dangers of trying to rely on those? I appreciate that, Spaff. That's that's a great question. In fact, <clears throat> I would tell you that my former employer 
has some products like that out on the market today. And I see an awful lot of people working on things like that in the startup space. So I think we're going to see more and more application of AI ML tools in that control layer to manage those things, manage them, but also mitigate them. I think they can be a part of the strategy to both identify and defeat attacks as they occur. Now, that's all well and good up to the point that someone starts then looking at those AI tools as potential attack points. I think that's one of the things we always have to think about is when we implement AI and ML tools, if we take away other attack vectors for attackers, they're not going to just give up and go home. They're going to turn around and look at it and go, okay, now I need to attack the AI and ML either by causing training problems or by, tra or by causing things to occur that had not been planned for. And that goes back to one of the comments I was looking at or was mentioning earlier. When we employ these tools, one of the big cautionary notes is just like every other piece of software, SPAF, we've got to test it. We've got to make sure that it does the things it's supposed to do both in the corner cases as well as in mainstream. And we've got to provide explainability so people know how, knows, know how it's working. Um, we've got another question here. It says, did the rise of the use of SDN change skill need for future network security engineers? Um, I think it does. I think it requires network engineers to also be able to do things like we just described, use tools that are in the AI and ML space. Um, I think it requires the network and security engineers to also have some more data science capability because we're going to be awash in data around networks over a period of time. And they're going to need to understand how to go through the process of identifying that data that's useful and those things that are actually not useful. Next question I've got is, and they're interested in methods, tools, and processes for rapid, rapid definition of micro-segmentation or just segmentation. It's my opinion, one of the biggest hurdles in implementing effective segmentation is the definition of ACLs uh, firewalls policies that traditionally have been fairly trial and error process. <clears throat> I think your instinct is right. And that's one of the reasons I included that slide that had that ACL list in it. Um, I think here again, we can do things in the AI and ML space to help test this. But I think the other thing we just have to do is to begin to be begin to get regimented about how we test these things and, and use standardized testing mechanisms in our environments to make sure they're doing the jobs they need to. So I think you're right. I think we need to do more and more segmentation. Um, I would tell you that I believe that the power to do that is coming to us very quickly. Uh, I think that we're going to see more computational capability at the edge. I think 5G is inherently bringing that to us. Um, I think with that kind of computational capability at the edge, we can run workloads to do more and more work in the segmentation space for protection than we've ever been able to do before. In fact, I mentioned the company earlier, Elicity, that I'm a part of, I'm engaged with. They actually do computational work to protect every entity in the network wherever it lives. If it lives in a data center, they protect it in the data center. If it lives on the edge, they protect it on the edge. I think that's one of the things that we're 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 rapidly getting a getting to a point to that we'll just we'll be able to do the work wherever we need to do it. Any other questions? Well, I'll, I'll ask one that uh, might might be interesting. How about home users, right? For us to install 
the typical home now has dozens of computing devices with networks. What is the consumer market going to be like for us to be able to protect ourselves at home? And how is the average person going to be able to manage the configuration of such items? All right. Well, let me let me pull a play out of the playbook of what I use at my home. And that way, I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not concerned about telling everybody. Uh, I'm a big believer in security appliances that sit in a position in the network that can protect everything subordinate to that portion, that portion of the network. So, um, and the reason I believe these are things that are useful is you can control them through standardized interfaces, through cloud-based tools. And, and so what I'm using in my home is actually a device that comes from my former employer. It was an acquisition they made from a company called Meraki. And on that Meraki device, I run IDS IPS, firewall, VPN concentration, advanced malware protection, and I actually do sand, uh, sandbox runs and scans on it that gets sent to the cloud. And then what's presented back to me every day or by exception are those things that are problems that I go look at. And you know, I admit I'm a little bit probably different than most of the people that are out there, but what I think we'll see, and it's fact, I think this is just by way of an example of what we're doing today or what's capable of being done today, we'll see an evolution of this going forward. I think we'll see more and more of these tools where you'll have a capability that will sit in a place in your network to defend the network. And it will be kind of like your assistant to do it. And I've actually said this to somebody, you know, what if at the time that we were building a home network, we were assigned a software assistant to help us defend and protect that tool or that, uh, that network with a set of tools that we knew we could rely upon from the point that we laid it down to the point that we deinstalled it. I think those are the kinds of things that we're going to end up seeing over time. I think we'll see that happen uh, more and more. We're getting more and more computational capability in those devices. We're getting more and more bandwidth. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important to think about the world when we get to a point that we've got that kind of capability. And, and to the point we were making earlier with the situation that we've seen with the pandemic and everybody working from home, people need that. Enterprises have rushed to get those kinds of capabilities in the hands of the workers at home, they've got two options. They can either do it on premises at the worker's home, or they can VPN everything that the worker does back to the VPN concentrator at the office and let the security team there do it. And they've done a little bit of both from what I can tell. So to answer your question, Spaff, I think where we are is we're gonna end up with tools that'll sit at that home network edge and will grow with us over time. You know, Frankly, I think we'll see AI and ML tools there as well. Uh, you know, the, the sandboxing example I use with Meraki devices that I was talking about actually does that automatically. It detects things that it thinks are malfeasant at the edge, sends them to the threat grid sandbox, blows them up, analyzes them, and then reports back whether or not there's a problem. And it, it's actually very good at what it does. And I think we'll see more and more tools like that in the home environment. Does that answer the question? I think so. Um, I'm. I was specifically thinking of someone like my my neighbor who has no technological background, and is adding. Uh, they've got a smart TV. They've got appliances with network connections as well as their cell phones and computers, and they need protection, but don't have the sophistication to look at, for instance, threat reports that are coming back and to know. Uh, how they should configure something. They want it to work because they're buying these devices, but they deserve protection at a, at a home interface. 
So I, I think your answer addresses that partially, but there's likely to continue to be a skills gap between what's provided and, and what the, uh, the homeowner, for instance, is going to be able to supply. I think you're right. I think what we'll see is more and more software to do that sort of thing. So for example, um, I deploy these devices I've described to you with so, some of my friends, and I rely on the ability of the, of the tool to do most of the work. Uh, you know, one of the things that I would tell you is that um, people have, have just now begun to realize that when they create an environment like you just described in the home environment, they create that problem that we were describing earlier about the, the lack of segmentation. Most home environments today, you can actually establish separate broadcast collision domains, separate Wi-Fi SSIDs, separate things that people can actually do to, to provide segmentation. And this is the same problem that they've got, um, you know, we've got, we, we don't segment anywhere else. If you don't, then you've got the smart TV causing a problem with the, uh, with the enterprise connected device they use for their their home office and things like that. So I think what we'll see over time is better tools, smarter tools, cloud-based offerings that'll help with those sorts of things. I mean, you know, let's go back to the notion of security, uh, security function virtualization. You could take most of those things and buy them as a consumer, either from a service provider or from a consumer service in the cloud and implement them mostly by just saying, okay, point it at my edge device and do what you have to do. Um, I think we answered the last question that was on here. Is there anybody else that has a question? Well, we've run out. I, I, I'm sorry. I think I talked a little too fast for you. <laughs> no, I think that's, uh, you had a lot of material that you were trying to get in there. I suspect that there are a number of people who are listening in who aren't as familiar with some of the concepts of software-defined networks uh, and uh, separation of planes in virtualization, virtual networks uh, to take full advantage of what you said. But that's one of the benefits of having the recording. They can go off and read up a little bit and come back and listen to it again. I think there was a lot packed into your talk that is going to be of value to uh, anybody who's working in this area. And, and just simply understanding the vision, that one slide of what the future networks look like, I, I really resonated a lot with that. So we have a lot of challenges ahead of us. We were, we're not gonna be out of work for anytime soon. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right, and I see in the chat, you've put your email address. So if anyone has follow-up questions, um, you can reply there. Uh, I haven't seen any other questions added, so we will uh, conclude with that. And thank you so much for joining us today. We actually look forward to you perhaps visiting us in person um, on some future time when we're all uh, vaccinated and uh, able to host you. I'd love to do that. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all. Have a great day.